0: By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yeah, yeah, we went, we'll remember Zion. By the rivers of Babylon. Hi, this is Robert Chogden. And
1: I'm Kirk Carnot.
0: And this is season two, episode six of Master of the Forty. This is a
1: podcast devoted to the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald.
0: One of the questions we do get quite often is, is Paris safe to visit? And yes, Paris
1: is safe to visit. In today's episode, we are going to cover the granddaddy, the magnum opus, the most famous of all Fitzgerald stories, which is 1931's Babylon Revisited. And I think that if you know no other story by F. Scott Fitzgerald on the face of the earth, you have probably either heard or been assigned to read in a class this particular one. Which begs the obvious question, Robert, why is Babylon Revisited considered F. Scott Fitzgerald's greatest short story?
0: Well, until Fitzgerald started going into public domain, it was the one that the Norton Anthology and other anthologies always picked. Since the 90s, it's we have more Winter Dreams, more Diamonds Big as the Ritz, but it is almost a perfect short story. It is a masterpiece in a focus of narration on Charlie Wells' of. Character study like no other, it examines Paris in the 1920s through sort of the jaundice eye of the 1930s. It's hard to describe exactly just how good this story is. I mean, very early on, it's one of the ones that Malcolm Cowley rescued in his short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and it's been in print continually since then.
1: There was a time in the 50s and 60s, and even when you and I started college in the 80s, where if you were going to buy an anthology of Fitzgerald short stories, it was probably called Babylon Revisited and Other Stories. So I think that you're absolutely right. If we break this story down in an Aristotelian sense, it is letter perfect. And to the point where you can teach this story in a creative writing class is a perfect example of foreshadowing, because as we'll see, a lot of what emotionally sows the seeds of Charlie Wells's failure to get his daughter Honoria back is his own ambivalence toward this recuperation that he's supposedly gone through. But there's another reason before we get into the story itself, and I think that is the biography. Right. There is a danger with F. Scott Fitzgerald that we always tend to veer from the story into teaching the biography. And in this case, I think part of the reason that it's considered his greatest story is it just so fundamentally parallels, with one major obvious exception, what was going on in Fitzgerald's own life, between about 1928 and late 1930 when he wrote it. The obvious difference is is that in this story, Charlie Wells's wife, Helen, has died. Zelda was very much alive. But if we were going to nail down the overall theme or point of this story, how would you summarize that?
0: I would say it's almost wanting to have your cake and eat it too. Because the the primary driver for Charlie in this story is to get his daughter back. And to do that, he has to be a better man than he was in the 1920s when he made a fortune in the market and stopped working. And then that led to his and his wife's dispensation where they partied too much and drank too much. But even though he is trying to, and he's back to working and he's working well and he wants his daughter back, he wants to have a family again, there's still that element of regret that he can't be the man he was in the 1920s in Paris. And there's that ambivalence that he has. It's not... Not quite apparent on the surface of the story, but it is there underneath it, which really makes the story Powerful for me.
1: It's often said in Fitzgerald studies that there are two Fitzgeralds. There's the participant, who's sort of the person that leaps in and revels in the new mores of the 1920s. But then there's the observer, the moralist, that is standing a couple steps back and judging, gauging the ethical dilemmas and problems that arise from these new freedoms that the lost generation experienced. And I think you have. A perfect example of that in this story, we have Charlie Wells, after a period of recuperation from a nervous breakdown, who has a fundamental sense of regret over the wastage that he's revelled in, but he keeps raking the coals of these memories to the point where there is a palpable nostalgia and It's almost as if what he regrets is not the period of hedonism itself in which he was a participant but that it has passed and that now the time has come to pay the price for it.
0: I think it's in this side of paradise where it's the line is like, I don't regret my lost youth. I regret like not experience losing it again.
1: Yeah, that's a phenomenal line. I, I think that is one of the most criminally underquoted lines in all of Fitzgerald. It gives you an insight into his idea about the conspicuous consumption and the spectacle of waste. I don't regret it. I regret that I can't lose it over and over again. Mm -hmm. So let's take a step back since this story is so identified biographically and talk a little bit about where Fitzgerald is in his life in December 1930. When he cranks out this story, one thing we want to mention is this story came out with very few revisions. It was sent in early 1931 to Fitzgerald's agent Ober it was immediately bought by the Saturday Evening Post and appeared within a matter of weeks in the magazine. So clearly, there was a recognition on all their parts that this was a strong moralistic story. It's also important to note that there are several stories that he are published in later in. 1931, that the Post was buying at this time, but didn't think were quite as strong. So we want to mention some of those as well. But just give us an idea where Scott and Zelda were in 1930, Robert.
0: Well, the 1930, Zelda is at, at the lowest point. She's collapsed in Paris. She's been hospitalized in Switzerland, the start of what will be hospitalizations for the rest of her life. I've never really had a satisfying diagnosis for what was wrong with Zelda. I mean, she was diagnosed at the time with schizophrenia, if I remember correctly.
1: Which was the diagnosis du jour of of psychoanalysis at that point.
0: Exactly. But the exertion with the ballet training, just the, the constant, almost constant partying since 1920. You know, I just think of like the beautiful and damned as being sort of yeah. <laughs> almost too autobiographical in that case. And you know, Fitzgerald is is has got a wife in in a hospital, has got a young child, and these clinics are not cheap. It's interrupting work on Tinder Is the Night uh, a great deal, and he's 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 turning out some pretty amazing stories, though. One trip abroad which we talked about yeah. earlier, The Hotel Child, this story, and it really also changes the direction of what Tender is the Night will become for Fitzgerald.
1: Just to throw out some basic dates, Zelda's breakdown occurs in April 1930. She is briefly treated in Paris. She comes back to their home and Fitzgerald is in the middle of a debauch. There's a a, a wedding party going on that will eventually be written about in the short story, The Bridal Party, which is his first attempt to write about the stock market crash. And that's an important point we want to bring up as well. She goes into Prongan in Neon, Switzerland in early June 1930, uh, the recommendation of another clinic there in Switzerland. And she's treated by Dr. Oscar Forrell, who's a very controversial figure in Freudian psychoanalysis. So they basically spend the summer and fall of 1930 struggling to figure out what is wrong with Zelda, what can be done therapy wise to get her back to functioning. And you mentioned the financial pressures on Fitzgerald. Pranjan costs him $1,000 a month. That's $15,000 a month in today's money. So his really only way of affording treatment for her is to crank out basically a short story for the Saturday Evening Post every six weeks. And it's in this period that he is uh, rewarded for the quality of his stories with $4,000 per story. So it's possible for him to pay for Pranjan, but he's also paying for his own lifestyle. And money is flying in and out the door. Their daughter, Scotty, is being effectively raised by a governess back in Paris. So there's a lot of financial pressures there is no, absolutely no work gets done on Tender is the Night in 1930 and 1931. It will not be until Zelda is released from Pranjan in the fall of 1931 and they come back here to Montgomery that he can even begin to sort of wrap his head around it. And it's really not until 1932 that he's able to write it. And that is the Dick Diver version. Before Babylon Revisited, he he can't even find the plot. He he has recently abandoned a version of it where he switched from Francis Mullarky to the to a couple named uh, Lou and Nicole Kelly, and that that version peters out pretty quickly. So he's really just spinning his wheels and aware that his career is. Uh, in a tailspin here. And so he's cranking out a short story every six weeks to pay for pay for this treatment. Amid this crisis, he's also having a lot of conflict with Zelda's family. In particular, she has a sister. Now, Zelda was the youngest of all of the children of Judge Anthony and Minnie Sayer, But one of her sisters is actually living in Europe in this time. Her name's Rosalind, and she and her husband, Newman, are living in Brussels and she and Fitzgerald are just going at it constantly. And so she has a direct influence on this story. Do you wanna do you wanna mention what that is?
0: She's basically Marion in the story. Yeah. If our memory serves, she did basically write to scott fitzgerald and say that he was to blame for zelda's predicament
1: yes the sayer family was convinced that it was fitzgerald's alcoholism that caused zelda's break zelda was convinced as much as anything that it was the alcoholism that if not just compounded it was one of the cardinal reasons now there is a long history of mental illness in the sayer family and One of her aunts actually committed suicide when she was a child on the Pleasant Avenue property there. So Fitzgerald was right to sort of snap back at them. But one of the interesting facts about this story is when he writes the original draft and makes all these corrections on it, he sends a copy to his agent and he says, send this back to me. The minute you get a typescript done, because I've got to send it to my sister-in-law and I've got to show her this story and get smart on her. You get the sense there that he is reveling in the fact that he is going to haunt or taunt the Sayer family in print. And certainly Rosalind Sayre Smith could not have been pleased by the portrait of the high-strung, prudish, judgmental Marion Peters that comes
0: through in here. If there is an obvious villain in the story, and choose my words wisely, it is Marion. Because Charlie just wants his daughter back. He just, he just wants a home. Yeah. And Marion, she doesn't understand that his and Helen's marriage and that Helen did terrible things to him as well. She just, you know, the one incident about him locking her out in the snow is the only thing that she remembers and she holds it against him.
1: So the basic premise here is that at some point after the stock market crash, the the story unfolds in about the real time of its writing. This is late 1930 and Charlie Wells, who is a former stockbroker returns to Paris after some period of working in Prague after a breakdown He's kind of got his financial stability back, but he is desperate to get guardianship of his daughter, which legally is resting with uh, Marion and her husband, Lincoln Lincoln Peters, exactly.
0: The early Lincoln obsession that will find fruition in The Love of the Last Tycoon.
1: Often referred to as Fitzgerald's presidential theme, or his obsession with great historical figures and comparing them with his characters. The difficult question that you really have to ask is if Charlie is coming back to Paris for the sole purpose of getting Honoria, who is his nine-year-old daughter, who has lost her mother, being raised by her aunt and uncle in Paris. Why does he go to all of the former haunts that he threw down at? The story opens, in fact at the Ritz Bar, the very famous Ritz Bar that will become a central scene in Tender is the Night as well.
0: He misses it. He misses this feeling of being this wealthy man in Paris where to give 10,000 francs to an orchestra to play one song, to give 100 francs to a doorman to call a cab and, and just not care anything at all about the money. And now in the 1930s, where most of the Americans are gone, and Marion is thrilled because, you know, no one thinks that you're a millionaire anymore. Thinking back on those days, he says, but it was nice while it lasted. We were a sort of royalty, almost infallible, with a sort of magic around us. In the bar this afternoon, he stumbled. But that's that feeling of uh, this feeling of power that money and wealth and not caring what you spend the money on gives you that he misses so much
1: you know robert it strikes me that you and i are very similar to charlie wales in a lot of ways because we'd spent two weeks out in montana and wyoming together at a conference and about the entire time we were reminiscing about all the wild Bacchanalia we had indulged in together when we were much younger men and talking continuously of, do you remember that time in Stresa, Italy? Or do you remember that time in Paris, France? (laughs) And kind of rehearsing all of our wildest moments in life. I think it's a natural human tendency for some people, especially for people that maybe regret the passing of youth or the the passing of the wilder times to look back and to measure the depth of the of the craziness that they had lived through knowing that we can't do it forever but at the same time thinking well that was a lot more fun than having to be in a responsible adult
0: exactly when you dread the hangovers more than you look forward to the excitement of the drinking that's really the shift That occurs. And that that shift has occurred for both of us (laughs) quite, quite some time ago, I believe.
1: Yes. And it's also the point where you can't really indulge without thinking that one day the bill will come due. Exactly. Because I think Fitzgerald... Always look back in fondness to the times where he just didn't care about money.
0: Right. And there, there's a, a level of freedom that you have have there. It's also sort of like when you have a family member who's sick, but as Zelda was, I have no doubt that, that Scott Fitzgerald very much loved his wife. But at some point, probably in in 1930... There's probably a level of hatred and sort of like, I would be better off without her around my neck, uh, Mm -hmm. because this is sort of dragging me down.
1: I don't think you can read an autobiographical story in which the author kills off the wife without thinking that's kind of a fantasy projection. To a certain extent, Babylon Revisited is F. Scott Fitzgerald's fantasy of what if Zelda passed away. Would I be able to be the father to this daughter and would people respect the fact that I have Changed now in reality, Fitzgerald was not changed in 1930. Zelda's breakdown did not stop him from drinking, if anything, it accelerated it even further. In 1930, as he's leading up to this, he's conducting there in Lausanne a pretty blatant affair with a woman who's often referred to as his Brett Ashley who inspires the main British aristocrat in The Hotel Child. He is shortly to have two more affairs in 1931. And this is all while Zelda is in Pranjan. So there's a sense there that he's not coming to account for his own participation in the way that he's forcing Charlie Wales to. In fact, there's a very famous letter in 1930 in which Zelda's doctor basically says to him you need to quit drinking and Fitzgerald writes back and says i cannot imagine life without drinking
0: right I, I, there's one reason that that Fitzgerald didn't seem to believe in psychiatry that much i think Jim West has an essay coming out on on Fitzgerald's view of yeah. psychotherapy especially for himself and it's it's almost like Fitzgerald says, she needs therapy, I'm fine, yeah. because I don't want to change whatsoever. But there's there has to be some level of awareness on his part yeah. that this is a double standard. And that, that, I mean, you can't create a character like Charlie Wells or a character like Dick Diver. And, and, and Charlie Wells seems like a sort of a test case for Dick Diver. Because when you, you start to look at that book very closely and you start to see that Dick Diver is not as wonderful as he uh, appears to be on the surface, and neither is Charlie Wells.
1: This is a great example of what I like to call the modernist self-excoriation story, where an artist... Artist basically does a self-autopsy on his own artistry and finds that he's either sold out or failed his own standards. And there's another famous story that I think pairs with this that comes a few years later that that really should be read alongside each other.
0: Oh, uh, that's that's the *Snows of Kilimanjaro* by Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, which has a similar character who is raking himself over the coals for wasting his talent for writing and thinking back about all of the stories that he has not written, many of which are set in Paris in the 1920s. And also uh, in the serial version of that story, F. Scott Fitzgerald is mentioned, not in the published version because Fitzgerald demanded that Hemingway change it, but Fitzgerald was the one supposedly who said, the rich are different from you and I, to which someone responded, yes, they have more money. And Fitzgerald did not like that attack on him. Uh, and through Max Perkins, it was changed. But you've made the argument that that line should be restored. I think it should be restored because it's it's not an art it's not an artistic revision on Hemingway's part. F. Scott Fitzgerald is not going to get any deader than he is already.
1: <laughs> not after eighty one years, I don't think.
0: Not after eighty one years, and and also. Uh, Do we go back and then remove the Fitzgerald reference from Hemingway's homage to Switzerland or the Fitzgerald reference in Torrents of Spring? I mean, it's obvious in Snows of Kilimanjaro that Harry in that story is Ernest Hemingway. Right. When I get to the point, knock wood in the Library of America, where I'm undertaking Snows of Kilimanjaro, I'll be changing poor Julia to poor Scott Fitzgerald, revising it back.
1: We look forward to it. It does affect the way that we read the story. And I think it makes both Babylon and snows, and which are connected by snow imagery. There's a very famous line in Babylon Revisited that... The snows of 29 were not real snow. Exactly. If you didn't want them to be real, you just paid some money. Right. So... The other reason I think this is an eminently teachable text and probably accounts for the reason that it's not just artistically, it's just not biographically, but it's also historically. And this is probably the most famous short story in American literary tradition to deal with the stock market crash or the repercussions of the crash. One of the amazing things about Fitzgerald was he so totally measured his life by historical change and historical tumult to the point where he calibrated, if you want, major milestones in his own life with the milestones in history. And so about the same time that he's finishing Babylon Revisited, he's writing in his ledger, he's summing up 1930, and he says, the crash plus Zelda plus America. So he's aligning the crash of his wife, of his marriage, with the crash of the stock market. Now, they're about six months apart because the stock market crash obviously happened in October 1929. But the onset of the Depression, effectively in Fitzgerald's own mind, meant that everything that he was famous for, the motifs, the types of storylines, was instantly a thing of the past. And I think he was very concerned and very aware that the change in attitude toward finances, toward money, toward easy money, meant that some of the things that he was famous for celebrating, that conspicuous consumption, were now horrifically out of style. And it's later on in 1930, for example, that the bestseller Only Yesterday comes out in which Fitzgerald is treated like the equivalent of the Backstreet Boys and about whenever they fell out of popularity 2003 or whatever almost instantaneously irrelevant.
0: I have this vision of Ernest Hemingway of Scott Fitzgerald and Thomas Wolfe as a boy band right now.
1: <laughs> well, you know, they could be they could be the Backstreet Boys, they could be What's the one from the late 80s? New kids.
0: New kids. Maxwell Perkins New Kids on the on the New Kids on the Kai. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Listen love everybody if you wanna take a chance.
0: We have talked about on this podcast before the Fitzgerald reinvention of himself and the multiple Fitzgerald styles and the nineteen nineteen thirty does mark sort of a, a shift stylistically and, and what he's going to write for as far as subject matter. He's done with sort of the prep school college stuff that, sort of the basil duke lee stories were the last gasp of the
1: exuberance yeah the exuber that we associate with the jazz age
0: is gone he's going to sort of basically invent the confessional essay in the crack up material he's going to try his hand at historic fiction not well but you know the night before chancellorsville and and the other he's going to you know go more in for comedy uh in the pat hobby material god help him he's going to try to become a proletariat writer with whatever uh the last tycoon was going to be <laughs> and the sad thing is that when he dies in 1940 he's remembered for the flapper stories which he, he you know he's been trying to get out of the flapper business since 1924
1: and in fact one of the sad fates that he suffers is posthumously there are as many if not more mentions of This Side of Paradise as first novel than there are of The Great Gatsby. So that gives you that idea that there's no... Reinventing himself Although he desperately wanted to And one of the sadder things about the end of his life Is he toyed with the idea Of sending out short stories under a pseudonym As a way of Punking, I guess, editors Who had a stereotyped vision of him In other words, if he sent them a story Even in 1939 or 1940 They expected certain things Of F. Scott Fitzgerald And if they didn't get him to them it would be As absurd as the Backstreet Boys Doing a prog rock album or something like that. It just made no sense to him.
0: It also strikes me that this might be the first blooming of Paris nostalgia yeah. that you get in the 1930s because it's 1933 and 1934 that Gertrude Stein publishes the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. And that's when you get these memoirs of how wonderful Paris in the 1920s was that colors everything.
1: And in fact, Fitzgerald, you mentioned his confessional essays. 1931, just a few months after that he published this story, he publishes Echoes of the Jazz Age, which interestingly enough, doesn't come out till the fall of 1931 in Scribner's magazine. But Scribner's publicize the essay, because as early as May and June, excerpts of it are being quoted by columnists. And it becomes this big tempest in a teapot about Fitzgerald's take on the the idea that the, the depression has killed the jazz age. It's still part of this reading his own autobiography through the changing times approach. And Echoes of the Jazz Age is a hugely important essay. I mean, there's almost no teaching the 1920s without teaching it. It's got all the great lines about there was a whole race going hedonistic. But he also mentions in there that that age is definitely over and that with the coming to Paris, that by the late 20s, the boats were disgorging Americans by the thousands that had ruined that place as a site of expatriation. One of the interesting things to me is that this story, unlike Snows of Kilimanjaro, does not make Charlie Wales a writer. And that's maybe one of the ways in which the story diverges biographically. Now, the film version of it, which is called...
0: Last time I saw Vera.
1: Exactly.
0: The Elizabeth Taylor, Van Johnson.
1: Yes, Van Johnson plays Charlie Wills,
0: mm-hmm. not Wills,
1: uh, and Elizabeth Taylor, I'm not sh- sure she ever looked more beautiful than she does in that movie, but it's not that great of a movie because of the the different changes that they make. They have a father figure of Helen and her sister, Marion, who is actually supposed to be one of the lost generation decadents because they, they make the film after World War II instead of the Depression. So that's an interesting twist. But in that, Van Johnson is, uh, is a writer. And there's parallels made to Fitzgerald's own life.
0: I'm trying to think, how how often does Fitzgerald use a, a writer as his protagonist?
1: That's a good question. Amory Blaine is trying to become one. Right. Or thinks he's going to be a great artist. He never quite discovers his milieu. Gosh, you know, I can't think of any right that jump right out on top of me. Maybe later on. There's a story called Financing Finnegan,
0: right, right, right,
1: which deals with a character who is a profligate writer, but certainly nothing to the degree that that Hemingway or even James Joyce does. Mm-hmm. Why do you think he doesn't make Charlie Wales a writer? Why do you think he makes him somebody who's involved in
0: finance? I think par- partially it is to to sort of distance the character from himself, and, and I think with a story like this. I don't know exactly how well publicized Zelda's hospitalization was in 1930, but it had to be known by a few people anyway that I think he wants to sort of put that some level of buffer be- yeah. between it. But then again, he picks the name for the daughter that's the same name as the daughter of uh, of Gerald and Sarah Murphy, right? Uh, his daughter Honoria. But of course, the name is also sort of significance because Charlie Wales is trying to regain his honor as well.
1: I think it also has to do with the fact that it allows him to stitch all these financial metaphors about value and about cost in there. Mm. When the crash happens, he begins writing a bunch of stories that are about the Depression that all in one way or another deal with this idea of our morality or our emotional resources being congruent to a sense of financial values. The most famous example of this comes in a story uh, that he publishes just a couple months later about Josephine Perry. These are the stories that are the counterpoint to the basal stories. The basal stories are done in 28 and 29. And then in 30 and 31, he writes mm. about five Josephine Perry stories, the most famous of which is the last one called Emotional Bankruptcy. And even though that story is set in the 1910s, long before the depression, it's a story about her being so frivolous with love that At the end, when she discovers somebody that might be her true love, she can't feel anything because she's just kind of frittered away. She's emotionally bankrupt. She's squandered it. She's spent all her reserves, all her resources Mm -hmm. on just being flagrant with her emotions. So that's a great example of a metaphor that I think that allowed him to draw this parallel between morality and emotional control to financial control. There are other stories in this period that are not particularly good stories that are about the lessons from the depression that his characters must must learn. There's a story called A Change of Class, which comes a little later in 1931, about a barber who makes all kinds of bank during the boom and his wife and her lover steal it all, and he's reduced back to cutting hair, eking out a living. And He learns the lesson of that. There's another one called Six of One, which is not a very good story, about wealthy men testing the morality of young men by giving them money they haven't earned and seeing if they can keep their moral compass from going bonkers. So he's very concerned in this period with expenditure and resources and saving and conservation. And I think that arises out of his sense of guilt and his sense that maybe at some level he can't control his emotional squandering.
0: Also, there's sort of like the thing with Fitzgerald and finance. There's a great level of luck involved with his. I mean, he really, he's like myself. He doesn't understand the stock market or anything. And it's just that it's Charlie could not really necessarily explain how, he got lucky in the stock market, <laughs> um, and neither can neither necessarily can, can I. If like when I look at my retirement, right. So that allows him, I think, sort of to keep things vague, but it works so well as a metaphor.
1: You remember in the late '90s during the kind of Clinton boom years, there the Alan Greenspan had a phrase called uh, irrational exuberance.
0: Exactly,
1: and it was the idea that we should all be wary. Of spending because there was inevitably going to become a financial crash. And we've lived through at least two of those with the dot com bust and then the great collapse of 2008. And yet we seem to be maybe entering a third one with the current inflation. But we never quite seem to learn our lesson because as human beings, our instinct is not to control our appetites. And we tend to denigrate people who are frugal and who are self-controlled, is lacking that exuberance that we all want to uh, indulge in. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest waste of money you've ever indulged in, just out of curiosity?
0: I think it was like a $500 stereo set at Circuit City. This tells you how long ago it was. (laughs) It's like a really good turntable right right when CDs kind of came in and replaced everything. Now I have all these albums and I don't really have a turntable anymore because it was a $500 Circuit City stereo system. It's long gone by this point.
1: One of the ironies of 1931, we should mention, is that in this year of the crash, probably the second or third worst year of the Great Depression, at a time when the average American income was $526 a year, Fitzgerald made his peak earnings. The $4,000 he got off Babylon Revisited were part of the about 10% of the 37600 that he made that year. That's $635,000. <laughs> He was basically the Elon Musk or the Bezos.
0: Let's call him Stephen King. Let's call him the Stephen King of the of his time. And of course, that was all Saturday
1: evening post money. Mm-hmm. It was not novels. It wasn't even adaptations at that point. Before we get into the story and immerse ourselves in it specifically and talk about the themes and symbols, let's talk a little bit about... The context of the story appearing in the Saturday Evening Post. The Post was uncomfortable a little bit with some of Fitzgerald's expatriate stories, stories about people who maybe stray in their marriage, as it's implied that Helen does, and that perhaps even Charlie has when he's going wild bicycling this expatriate Brad Ashley type character named Lorraine around the big sites in Paris. There certainly were not cool with drugs being mentioned. They took out a reference to hashish in The Hotel Child. You know an expatriate is decadent when they get their Pekingese high off hashish. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta be one of my favorite moments in all of Fitzgerald where the Pekingese gets high. And they were uncomfortable with elements in this story. There's a moment where Charlie goes to see a very famous American star who's performing in Paris, and he references her dancing in fairly sensational type of language. He refers to Josephine Baker and kind of famous line that is sometimes interpreted racially, her chocolate arabesques. But the post cut a whole section of that out where he elaborated on Josephine Baker. They also, I think, cut out references a little later on to some of the decadence that was going on. There was a line in his original about the things that he had seen in Paris would make Peronius blush. and Of course, that's a reference to the Satyricon, which originally supplied the title of Great Gatsby, which was from Alcio in, in West Egg. I always think of the Satyricon references to the Beatles because when John Lennon came out after the breakup and decided to smash the... Image of the mop tops as four clean clep beetles. He described their first trip to America as like a uh, Fellini Satyricon. And it just always gives you that great image of all of the orgies and the indulgences and the the crazy things going on. But that was too much for the post. They did not want references to the satiricon in there. And by and large, those have been left out of the story in just about every subsequent edition. They did frame the story in a particular way. One of our colleagues, Jennifer Nolan has a great piece that appeared in book history about five years ago, in which she reads the short story in the way that the Post framed it, looking in particular at the illustrations, which stress Charlie's relationship with Honoria rather than any kind of flashback to the decadent 20s but also she looks at other articles and essays that were appearing in 1930 and 31. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear that for the Post, and this is in keeping with George Horace Lorimer's very right-leaning Republican politics, the reason for the Great Depression was not anything in the system of capitalism itself. It was not tied to the instability of supply and demand or values. It was because young men like Charlie Wells had lost their moral compass. So, The reason the Post took the story and saw it as a valuable story is it reinforced their idea of the reason for the Depression and the fact that we should not be talking class revolution or the redistribution of goods or any of these sorts of things that the proletarian writers were talking about, but that we should just get through it, get back to our basic core values like Charlie is doing, and that would take care of all of the financial instability in the market.
0: All of these uh, American magazines, have such a different point of view and sort of an unstated moralism that you don't get with, say, the little magazines that, was pub- that were published in the 1920s in Paris uh, at the time. And it's very
1: different than what will happen in the 40s and 50s, where the literary viewpoint of people as as being corrupt and unworthy perhaps of redemption Becomes coming to the norm in popular what we would call middle brow literary fiction much of which is being written in the 50s by Faulkner and Hemingway and Steinbeck and and Edna Ferber people of that generation. I think Fitzgerald kind of sneaks in some of the more troubling questions. Hmm. But there is also a nostalgia. One of the great lines in Babylon Revisited is he he wanted to jump back a generation and believe in character again. And there's that split in Fitzgerald, as we mentioned previously, between character as a kind of moral compass and indulgence—the fun of getting wasted
0: and going too far. Yeah, the whole thing about him, you know, looking for his old friends, asking for his old friends. One of whom is n- named the Snowbird. Yeah, which is one of my favorite, like under under the radar cocaine references in literature that I'm quite sure that the post did not pick up on. <laughs> But then, of course, the ending, he wasn't young anymore with a lot of nice thoughts and dreams to have by himself. He was absolutely sure Helen would not have wanted him to be so alone. The fact is that without his drinking, without his partying, he is alone now because there's there's absolutely nothing else.
1: And this begs the question because one of the first long-running debates about the story concerned whether charlie wells was really reformed or whether he was just kind of pretending to be not not maybe not pretending to be but fooling himself that he is for many many decades i think probably all the way up th- into the 80s critics felt very defensive about the idea that Fitzgerald wasn't entirely regretful and wasn't reform-minded. And so they tended to insist that Charlie was sincere in his desire to make amends. But from since the 80s on, I think it's very difficult to uphold that argument. And I mentioned earlier that there's great bits of foreshadowing in this story that that are almost textbook examples of how you construct a story and build dramatic tension in it. He does something that basically sows the seeds of his own destruction and has planned to get Honoria back and It's right there in the opening paragraph of the story,
0: yeah, he's asking for his friends, he asks for Mr. Schaefer if Mr. Schaefer uh, hears that Mr. Schaefer is in Paris and he scribbles an address on a notebook and gives it to the barman and it's the address of Lincoln and Marion Peters, the only address he has. And it's in case it's basically there is no texting at this time. So <laughs> you can't text Schaefer and Lorraine and say, what, what up? He lives his address. And so surprisingly, when they show up drunk at his in-laws <laughs> place, he is shocked, shocked that they, that, that these drunks have shown up here.
1: Whether he's lying to himself or he doesn't realize it, he's basically saying, I have no idea how they found me.
0: And he may not. The thing that gets me is the one drink a day. Yeah. I've not gone through any 12-step program I've don't believe necessarily that I have to. Classic alcoholics. I can stop whenever I want to.
1: I can control it when I put my will to
0: it. And he so much wants to have one foot in the respectable world and one foot still in that other world. And I think also when he sees when he is sober and we never see him drunk, really, in this story, he sees how awful Lorraine and Duncan are on their debauch because they, they're obviously still on a debauch. But he remembers, you know, because Lorraine reminds him of the times when they stole the butcher's tricycle and rode it. And he says that he can't really square locking Helen out in the snow But the stealing of the tricycle sounds like him. That he can sort of understand. I've always read this story that he is a little bit more than culpable about what happens uh, at the end. Part of the great tension of the
1: story is it's all unconscious on his part. He doesn't mean to, but he hasn't totally paid the debt. Right. And he hasn't come to grips with it. And, you know, for Marion, as much as she is an antagonist in this story, that's clearly what she picks up on. I am going to contradict you just a little bit that there was no texting back in Paris at this time. Because there is a fantastic detail historically that I absolutely love in this story. And you know what it is. Ah, okay. I know where you're going with this. The pneumatic, which was a system of pneumatic tubes built throughout Paris, connected to different hotels and banks and other institutions, where if you wanted to send somebody... A message without having to go leave a note for them. You could, much like a drive in bank, just stick in a little canister and just whoosh it throughout Paris. And I remember for years reading this story and having no idea what a pneumatique was but it's just mail delivered by air pressure
0: we had a few of these in the first couple of hemingway letter volumes yeah so there's a note somewhere on them but yeah that kind of slipped my mind a bit
1: well i just made that connection when you mentioned uh texting because i thought that they really can't call each other but they can send these notes and it's a a little more permanent that
0: way you remember, you know, going to your first literary conference. There would be the the message board that you would check in with the, at the yeah. message board, big like chalkboard, like quirk chalkboard with messages taped up.
1: Meet me at the bar at five
0: o'clock. Exactly. Yeah. You know.
1: Another interesting little bit of trivia about this story: a couple of the names that get into here that I find kind of curious. Early on, he mentions two people asking Alex the bartender where they are. One of them is George Hart, and the other is Claude Fessenden. I think Fitzgerald was maybe venting a little bitterly at this point at different people in his lives. Zelda had a friend named Sarah Hart, spelled a little bit differently, two A's, but she was a Montgomery student, was a few years older than Zelda, but she had gone on by this point in time to marry. Mm. You know who she married? I do not. She married H. L. Mencken. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, Sarah Hart. I think he's using that name in there to take a bit, a little bit of a pot shot, maybe at people from Zelda's background that he felt might be judging him, or who, who maybe got out of the South or got out of Montgomery a little less scarred than Zelda did. Sarah Hart came and visited Zelda. Uh, when they were living in Delaware in 1928 and interviewed her. And it was apparently a very awkward meeting. The Fessiden name, I did not catch this until just a few months ago. We, we were at the Fitzgerald Review editing this wonderful essay by a historian outside of St. Paul named Mary Jane Levine. And you might remember because when you and I went to uh, White Bear Lake about five years ago, she was the head of the local historical society that organized a great day of learning about the setting of Winter Dreams. But she did this wonderful essay about a friend of Fitzgerald's who in 1919 helped him pull this side of paradise together mm-hmm. named Catherine Teague, who married a guy whose name was Hart Fesedin. And so I was. I just happened to be rereading Babylon last fall, and I thought, why have I had never made that connection between those two names? And I thought it was kind of kind of interesting that he would be calling upon that name out of the blue. He and Hart Fessenden were at Fort Leavenworth in the same time in 1918, and there is a very a, a very elusive reference in the ledger to having a squabble or a, having a fight with Fessenden. No explanation. No idea of what it was about. So maybe he harbored some little bit of resentment at Fessenden in that story as part of the reason he uses that name.
0: But I also had to talk about the name Wales. Oh, okay. I always heard that this was an allusion to the Prince of Wales. Mm -hmm. And of course, that links back, you know, the glamorous Edward VII, the Nazi, the one who had to abdicate, uh, who was a figure, a glamorous figure in the 1920s. Even in Fitzgerald, you have like Rag Martin Jones and the Prince of Wales. Right. You know, sort of a shorthand for this charming, charming figure.
1: And Charlie has lost his charm. He's lost his charm. That's part of what the story is about is the fear of if I'm no longer... The Wild Man, Am I Interesting? The story has always reminded me of a quote I remember from Marianne Faithful, who you remember was the British folk singer and Mick Jagger's girlfriend for a long time in the late 60s. And she spent most of the 70s in a drug haze and went through rehab and came out in the late 70s. And she said Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, they made it painfully clear that they did not like her sober. She was not as interesting or as much fun sober than when she had been drugged out. And I think to a certain extent, Fitzgerald worried about that. I think he felt, am I that interesting if I am not playing the role of the, the wild literary guy?
0: Right. I mean, you have all these these characters, and it may be just the, the luck of the draw, but when we did Crazy Sundays with uh, the sort of the alcoholic performance by the main character there, at a certain point, you're not going to talk about like what cocktail you're going to to have. Are you left talking about what kind of retirement system are you enrolled in? I discovered this with a very close friend of mine several years ago and we talked for about 15 minutes about our various retirement plans at Kent State University and his at IBM and And I realized that we were talking, we had talked for 15 minutes about this and we were both very into our retirement systems and we have really grown up at this point, (laughs) old and boring.
1: All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about one final thing. This story has a history in expatriate literature as a map to the expatriate hotspots of the 20s. And there are very specific sites that are named. What's interesting is this is a rare story about expatriates on the right bank. Of Paris. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we talk about expatriates in Paris, there's a notion that the geography is symbolic, in that the left bank being the artist bank. That was Hemingway's territory when he would have apartments with the right working class. But Fitzgerald was much more of a right bank person going some of the more expensive apartments. Although Lincoln and Marion's apartment is on a street where Scott and Zelda lived right before Zelda's breakdown. So
0: if memory serves, when the Fitzgeralds first came to Paris in 25, they settled on the right bank. Right. And then they shifted yeah. uh, later on. Hemingway did the exact opposite. Yeah. yeah. It was with Pauline Pfeiffer that they settled uh, their apartment and after 27 was on the right bank. Right. Away from the, the sort of working man's territory.
1: And of course, Hemingway by the 40s was staying at the Ritz Hotel, which is probably the most famous building on the right bank. So the fact that we start this story in, in the Ritz Hotel The fact that we go to these sites and that charlie walks up and makes reference to zellies which was a famous nightclub and the cabaret paris where josephine baker performed this story thus becomes one of the key texts along with the sun also rises and tender is the night by which a lot of people who go to paris specifically go and visit these sites and in fact three years ago When the Fitzgerald Society was in Paris on a swelteringly hot day of about 103, I led a literary walk that turned into the Bataan Death March (laughs) as we tried to cover many of these sites. But probably the most fun we had was going up into Montmartre, which was not an area that was necessarily associated with the white modernists. That was the Black... American modernist area. That's where Langston Hughes was. And the fact that this story mentions Bricktop, Mm -hmm. which was a famous cabaret led by Ada Bricktop Smith, and where Cole Porter would hang out also on the right bank, but it, but by the Rue Pagal and gives us a very different version of the Paris than we think of as being part of Hemingway. Although they go to Zellies and Sun Also Rises, don't they?
0: I think there's one reference to them going to Zellies, but it's, it's primarily, it's primarily set on the, in the left bank in the Latin Quarter. I mean, this is like worlds away. This is, this is the Paris of, uh, the belloc uh, Ope- yeah the my my pronunciation toulouse track at bellopock thank you but this is like the paris really of the 1890s you know m- the moulin rouge is there right right um and you can still see big tour buses of fat englishmen and scotsmen being hustled into the to the moulin rouge and like yeah the caja and
1: a couple of the nightclubs that he makes mention of, I would encourage readers to Google because the images are pretty amazing. He he makes reference to two bars that were next to each other, one called Cafe of Heaven, Cafe of Hell. And when you go and look at those, I mean, it's pretty cool that there was a huge structure built around the front doors that evoked both of these visions, almost Dante-esque visions of, of paradise and Hades. And the fact that Fitzgerald even mentions a tour bus going through Paris as he's walking along, and you get that sense of the tourists gawking at what expatriation has become. They're all rolling around these sites looking at these famous places. So it's a story as well about tourism and travel and what we should do when we go and visit foreign sites. There's a line early on where he talks about the city wasn't American it had gone back to the europeans and i think that's a very important line that gives you a sense of what the crash meant for expatriates trying to live abroad in paris at that time
0: after 1931 did fitzgerald fitzgerald never went back to to europe did
1: never went back to europe never went back to paris never went back to europe yeah except for a trip to cuba never really left the United States.
0: Right. It's an amazing story. I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, we could talk for hours and hours about it. And I just have to point out that the most mature character in it seems to be Honoria.
1: I think that's absolutely important. It gives you a sense of how maybe Scotty Fitzgerald behaved in that world. There's a couple passages that do deserve to be pointed out. I would just mention after he loses any chance, at least for the next six months or so, of, of getting Honoria back, he goes back to the Ritz bar, and he's hanging out there with Paul, the bartender. And the guy says, I heard you lost a lot in the crash. I did, and Charlie added grimly, but I lost everything I wanted in the boom, selling short something like that. You could not have a more perfect metaphor for the moral corruption of what he's referring to in in the story we talked about with emotional bankruptcy. And the other passage that I think is just absolutely amazing and beautiful is the snows of 29. That deserves to be heard and read aloud just because it's such a brilliant, brilliant metaphor. Again the memory of those days swept over him like a nightmare. The people they had met traveling. Then people who couldn't add a row of figures or speak a coherent sentence. The little man Helen had consented to dance with at the ship's party, who had insulted her ten feet from the table. The women and girls carried screaming with drink or drugs out of public places. The men, who locked their wives out in the snow.
0: Because the snow of twenty-nine wasn't real snow. If you didn't want it to be snow, you just paid it some money.
1: That is a brilliant line. And again, it captures so perfectly, not just the depression, but any period in which our own desire for luxury and for conspicuous consumption drives our economy to some sort of crazy end. Seems a very appropriate story to be reading right at this moment of time as we are all struggling with inflation.
0: Oh, yes, indeed.
1: All right. Well, Robert, on a scale of one to 10 Zeldas, how would you rate this story? It's,
0: it's a 10 Zelda. Yeah. I think it might be, in my opinion, the best short story Fitzgerald ever wrote.
1: My only qualm with it is it is so good and so famous that it becomes the reason that we maybe overlook a lot of the other Fitzgerald stories when it's constantly anthologized or cited as his best short story or taught ad infinitum. Mm-hmm. I think it creates maybe a misperception that the rest of the stories are just less interesting or less important.
0: I agree on that. It's, it's the Gatsby issue with Gatsby in comparison to the other novels.
1: I'll tell you another analogy I was thinking about earlier today. This story is so familiar to us, and you and I have taught it so many years, that it reminds me of maybe examples of great songs that we have come to tell ourselves when we hear it, oh, not again, that we think we have no interest whatsoever in hearing that particular song again, only to hear it and realize, darn, that's a dang good song. So long and short is Babylon Revisited is the Stairway to Heaven of F. Scott Fitzgerald stories.
0: The I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones, um, <laughs> Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. And I think I've I've said many times, if if no filmmaker uses that for 20 years, I will be happy.
1: There's actually a whole documentary coming out now on that song. Mm -hmm. I saw the previews the other night.
0: It's the Louie Louie of American (laughs) short fiction.
1: There we go. Well, I would agree with you completely
0: that it is a
1: 10 out of 10 Zeldas. The historical relevance that it has to the early 1930s elevates it above maybe some of the flapper stories or even Mayday or Diamond as Big as the Ritz. And I think the the tone of regret is very important in the sense that it, it appeals simultaneously to two very American desires. Uh, One is the Jeremiah, one is to lament where we've gone wrong, but the other is to consume and to use up and and to squander. And the fact that he does it with such subtlety that he's not doing it with other stories of this period, with the possible exception of emotional bankruptcy, just makes it, again, a perfect piece of fiction.
0: I think what basically, just by itself, it's an amazing story, but when you see it in the context of Fitzgerald's life and his output, it's still an amazing story. But you, you can kind of see where the promise of a story like The Bridal Party or Last of the Bells or The Hotel Child, when it finally gets to this story, sort of the, the culmination of that change and growth in Fitzgerald, I think it it's still an amazing story.
1: All right. Well, the other thing we do every episode is we reach into the magic hat and we draw a title out. So our next episode will be on Hello. 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 Diamond Dick and the First Law of Woman. Hello. 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 This is one that we will not be singing the quality of necessarily.
0: Oh, from the sublime to the ridiculous again.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, we just like to be as uh, varied as possible. So (laughs) that said, Robert, as always, we invite folks who might be so inclined to give us a review that helps get the word out there. And if anybody has any particular questions about the Fitzgerald Society, we should mention that we will be having a conference next June in Vaju, Sweden, campus of Linnaeus University. And just maybe... There might be some listeners out there that are inspired by our discussions of these short stories that we could do a whole panel on Diamond Dick and the First Law of
0: Woman. <laughs> Submit those essays to the Fitzgerald Review as well. For, for There a, you go. Anything on the four-fifths, they'll take it, sight unseen.
1: That would be a great one, <laughs> since nobody has ever really
0: talked about that one. Yeah.
1: Oh. All right, Robert. Well, thank you again for your time, and we'll be talking to you soon. Appreciate it, Kurt.
0: Glad to talk to you. The personal tragedy of Charlie Wales in 1931 is one possible arithmetical result to be obtained by adding up the years of the 1920s and dividing by the number of people present.
1: What?!